today's sermon. I've been doing this for a while. I know our church is about a year old. Uh, I'm in probably, I think, why well, almost 19 years of being a pastor and preaching regularly. Uh, this is the hardest sermon I've ever prepared and uh, probably the hardest sermon that I'll ever deliver uh, t- today. So um, I want to... Uh, I want to catch you up a little bit on the series before we jump into today's sermon. We've been in a series called God and Sex, and this is a series that if you've missed any weeks, I really, maybe we say that all the time, I don't know, but you really should go get caught back up. Uh, All of our sermons um, are on YouTube or anywhere that you get podcasts. Just look up Mosaic Church of Grand Rapids and you'll find them. Uh, But we gave a really important introduction to this series that I'll bring us back to for our sermon today. We're not all going to agree. Uh, we didn't all agree on this topic, particularly prior to starting this series. Uh, lots of churches are, are splitting over the topic of human sexuality, LGBTQ+, plus, um, people and theology, and um, where do churches fall. Denominations are splitting over this. And I really believe that in Mosaic, um, we don't have to lose people. Uh, We don't have to split over this. I believe that God is going to use this series and this sermon really to just bring all of us into deeper levels of reflection and thinking and going back to Scripture uh, and hopefully maturity, Uh, myself uh, very much included. So our first week of the series, we talked about how Jesus is with you in your sexual brokenness. Let me say that again. Jesus is with you and your sexual brokenness. And then that brokenness looks different for all of us. We all have different stories, but trust me, everybody has a story. Everybody's carrying something around with them that's heavy, and Jesus is with you, and he's with you, and he's with you, and he's with me. He's with us and our sexual brokenness. Last week, we looked at God's design for sex and looked at this one flesh union, this one flesh union Uh, between a man and a woman within marriage, that that's God's definition of sex. And we really broke that down. And I shared uh, shared some of my story as well and some of my struggles and uh, and just encourage you to to get caught up if you missed that. Um, We started to hit on this last week as we looked at the scriptures, and we're going to look at them again on the screen, that as we look at God's design for sex in the Bible, it is between male and female. And we started talking about gender And uh, we're going to talk more about that today. Um, And I even said the wrong word last week. We're going to talk about the difference today between gender and sex. And um, when we say that, uh, I'm going to get ahead of myself, uh, so I won't do that yet. First, what I want to do is break down what this this acronym, LGBTQ+, means. I know for some of you, it's something you're very familiar with. For others, it's not, and, and you don't know. And so I thought it would be helpful before we, we move any further. Um, it's easy to just say a bunch of letters and not know what they are. So uh, just quickly, the L stands for lesbian. Um, first of all, let me start and say not everybody who may have same-sex attraction or who may identify as gay or trans or anything on this spectrum, not everybody agrees on the terminology to use. Uh, LGBTQ plus is, is the most common, uh, one of the common um, kind of uh, summaries, and it's, it's an attempt to be inclusive of different people's experiences uh, with their attractions, their, and, and we'll talk about that down here at the plus. Uh, so if you were a woman and you had attraction towards other women, it doesn't mean you'd want to be called a lesbian. Uh, some do, some don't, but that's what the L stands for. It's for women who are attracted to women. Uh, G, the gay, is uh, technically for men that are attracted to men, but you'll often hear it more as an umbrella term for anyone that's attracted to the same sex. 
And so that's, I'll be using it today sort of in that way. Um, B, bisexual, is those that are attracted to both men and women. Uh, T can stand for trans, sometimes with an asterisk uh, next to it, or transgender. And we're going to talk about that towards the latter part of the sermon a bit more. But just in brief, uh, again, there's many, many forms uh, or, or experiences, I should say, of being trans within kind of a blanket, uh, the T. But it's, to some level, it's um, an inc- incongruence uh, between someone's biological sex, so their, their anatomy. And when we say sex, we're talking about anatomy, uh, male, female, and how they experience their gender. So they experience their gender uh, as, as the opposite or in a different way than the biological sex that, um, that, that they have on their body. Uh, Q, queer, is uh, formerly a derogatory word uh, that's been reclaimed by the LGBTQ plus community, uh, reclaimed again by some, uh, and it's, a, it's an umbrella term for kind of uh, the whole spectrum of LGBTQ plus. Uh, if you, why is there a plus there? Um, the plus seeks to reflect the full diversity of sexual orientations, gender identities, expressions, and sex characteristics. When I say sex characteristics, it gets confusing, right? Because we're using the word sex in two different ways. Um, it's not talking about having sex there. It's talking about anatomical sex. There's different characteristics of ways people are born in their anatomy. There's, uh, we could call them abnormalities, things that are outside of, out of what's standard or normal, and, and that's what it means by sex characteristics. Um, so uh, you, sometimes we'll see I or A added to this, um, to this acronym, and I stands for intersex. I had a long length of, of notes about intersex uh, later in the sermon that I had to cut out because um, I didn't want us to be here until dinner. Uh, and, uh, but intersex, and we'll talk about that briefly a little bit later too, uh, but intersex is... Uh, one form of intersex, and might be the way, the most common way of thinking about it, is when someone is born with both male and female anatomy. Uh, don't use the word hermaphrodite. That's not an appropriate word. It's an outdated word. Uh, don't, don't use that word, uh, and it will give you some guidelines as we go. But intersex is the word for someone that's born with both male and female anatomy. But there's many forms of intersex. Um, there's 16, at least from my sources, and um, only... Uh, a very, very small percentage of uh, being intersex is someone that's born with both anatomies. Uh, it also can mean that your chromosomes are different than the standard, so XX, XY chromosomes, uh, that you'd have a, you would have uh, some alteration of your chromosomes. It can also mean uh, abnormalities or alterations of your anatomy, uh, but still being unambiguously male or female. So there's a, a wide, wide range there as well. Uh, the A uh, that you might see in here is for asexual, and that is someone with little or no uh, sexual desire uh, or drive. And what's interesting is when, it, when you break all those down, you go, wow, those are all very different, right? Like, sometimes we use this, this acronym, like, it, everyone is the same. Even the LGB is quite different than the T. I mean, very, very different experiences, very different struggles, even very different as we look at discipleship and, and a, you know, trying to go to the Bible. I mean, um, let alone adding intersex and asexual on, onto the list. Um, so a couple other things with language. Um, don't say uh, homosexuals. Don't use homosexual uh, as a noun. Um, just I don't have time to explain it. Just don't do it. Um, it's, it's no longer the right term to use, and it's offensive. Uh, sometimes you might see, hear it used as an adjective, so homosexual attraction versus heterosexual attraction, uh, but not as a noun. Those 
homosexuals. Uh, that it's, it's, it's been, especially in the church, it's been used in a, in a negative, sort of condemning, judgmental way, and it's just not a word to use anymore. Um, mostly you'll hear straight and gay are now the words uh, that are used, or maybe sometimes straight and non-straight, uh, um, those sorts of things. Um, cisgender, if you hear that term, cisgender is a term used for uh, someone like myself, who's, uh, who's um, my, my biological sex and my experience of my gender are the same. And you might also just hear that used non-trans if someone doesn't want to use cisgender. Um, don't ever use gay as name-calling uh, or as a descriptive word. Um, and so you might be at a point where like, does anyone still do that? Yes, people still do that. I still hear people say it. Uh, kids say it a lot, teenagers say it a lot, and I hope adults have stopped saying it. Um, but, but that must end. Um, gay as a, any kind of name calling or any kind of descriptive word, that's gay, you know, that, anything like that. Uh, same with queer, don't ever do that uh, anymore. And, and um, F-A-G, I'm not even going to say the word, uh, don't ever, ever say that. It is an extremely, extremely inflammatory, uh, really hate-filled word. So those are some, hopefully some helpful uh, vocabulary terminology uh, as we get going. Um, I forgot I have notes up here and here. I'm not used to having notes here, so give me a moment here. Um, this is, uh, there's a lot here. All right, um, we're not going to the slide yet. All right, so in the church, in the 90s, I grew up in the church, uh, some of you here did, and some of you didn't. In the church in the 90s, it was pretty simplistic, um, specifically talking about um, the L, G, and B up here. I don't think, at least in my world, the T wasn't even on the radar. I, I, don't, I don't think, um, maybe, maybe it was in, in, in a certain way, but only in um, very sort of mocking, negative you know, sort of ways. Um, but in my world, when, when you heard anything in the church talked about about uh, the, the topic of homosexuality, if scriptures were, were, were brought up, um, it was pretty simplistic. The understanding in the 90s was um, people choose that. So people choose to be gay. People choose to have attraction towards the same sex. And so therefore, uh, the Bible says that's a sin. Don't, uh, don't choose that. And some of you might be sitting here, I respect if you're going, I, I think people do choose that. I would just invite you um, to, to go along, you know, on the sermon today and, and listen, and, and, and I, um, I, I, yeah, we'll get there. So, um, but the thought was people chose it, and don't do it, and so, so um, don't choose that. And uh, because of that, you had situations, I know of one, of one uh, story where a gay uh, Boy, teenager, teenage boy, overheard his, his Christian dad in the other room. This was a dad who's on the deacon board uh, kind of dad, say to uh, the, a friend or the mom, someone, and said, if I found out my kid was gay, I would, I would disown him. I would disown him. I'd kick him out of the house. Well, this kid was gay. He was gay, and, in, and he, was, he was in the closet, gay, and he heard his dad say that in the other room. You got you to think... Um, how would, you, how would you internalize that as a, a kid in a Christian family? Um, because of the, the mindset in the church, people choose that it's a sin, don't choose it. Uh, gay within a church became a slur. It was the butt of, of many jokes. To, to my shame, growing up in youth group, I mean, we just didn't know better. Um, I, I mean, I, we, this is just was the cultural climate we were in. We said those words all the time. And imagine you're in an environment where people are saying gay and, and these, other, these other words, um, and you yourself are like, I'm, I'm, I'm a man attracted to men. Uh, and my friends all just make fun of that. 
So how could I ever go to any of them to share my life experience with them to get support when all they're doing is mocking me? So that was the climate of the church uh, in the 90s, still is in, in many circles to this day. But slowly what started happening is straight Christians like myself and some of you, we started to meet gay people. So we started to meet gay people and we started to hear their stories. And when we started to hear their stories, uh, number one, we found out that they were not choosing to be gay, okay? They were not choosing to be gay. Uh, the majority that I know, that I've talked to, discovered it in their childhood, like young ages of seven or eight years old, or when they hit puberty. Uh, somewhere in their teenage years, uh, they discovered they have this attraction towards the same sex. Now, what child or teenager wants to have an attraction to the same sex? Okay, we'll get, we'll get to it later, maybe how some culture, cultural um, changes have, um, maybe there's some kids today that, that might choose it. But by and large, um, that, is, that is not, um, by and large, this is being discovered in childhood and in adolescence. And as a, as a child then, who's growing up in the church, what's your next thing that you do? Well, you don't tell anybody, and you immediately start to pray it away. God Take this away. I cannot be like this. I mean, did you hear what my dad just said in the other room? He would disown me. Like, this must be the worst thing in the world. Take this away. And so, um, this is a gay friend of mine calls it, we, we tried to pray away the gay. And it doesn't work. It didn't work. It doesn't work. There were whole ministries set up to pray away the gay. And they didn't work. And they caused a lot of harm to a lot of people. Uh, there's a very, very small percentage of people that would have uh, any type of experience of, of that attraction orientation changing. Now, we're going to get to more of that, and it's complex, um, but, but if you have a, a mindset of why wouldn't God change that, I don't know why God wouldn't change it. I don't know. We can ask him that someday, but every gay person I know that is a Christian, and probably some that aren't, has tried to pray it away, has people pray over them. I had one friend who had a, a, a deliverance ministry. That's where they, they try to uh, expel demons from you. And there, there's so many things that everybody has tried that haven't worked. And, and we, have to, we have to listen and we have to learn about that. Number three, uh, for, as we hear these stories, we hear that these um, gay people have endured incredible abuse within society and the church for an attraction that they don't control. So the attraction we just talked about is not something they've chosen, and yet within the church and within society, they have been abused and ostracized. Here's my slide. Okay, so these are some modern statistics from 2020 to 21. Hate crimes against LGBTQ plus people rose 70%. 93% of LGBTQ plus youth say that recent politics have negatively impacted their mental health. It's talking about depression, anxiety, the whole gamut of mental health and being able to function. 1.8 million LGBTQ plus youth seriously consider suicide each year, and at least one attempts suicide every 45 seconds. Now, if you don't know gay people, 
in your life, and the same would be for trans people, if you don't know trans people in your life, and you haven't had these conversations with them, if there's not someone you could call right now or text right now and go out to lunch and it would be normal to meet with them and normal to have a conversation with them, um, I am asking you to reserve your conclusions on how simple you might think this is for them. And I can tell you for sure, if you're straight, your experience is nothing like theirs. Nothing like theirs. And it's incredibly presumptuous for us to say, uh, this is how simple it is, so this is how simple it should be uh, for you. Um, all right, so this would be a good time to mention, um, oh, pro presenter, you gotta love it. My picture, didn't, my picture didn't come over. That's okay. Old technology. It's nobody's fault. Um, good time to mention I had a picture up of the episode, but it doesn't matter. Um, I, epi- I, I interviewed on my podcast. It was up here. It was called The Flip Side. Uh, a, a friend of mine named Jack, Pastor Jack. Um, Pastor Jack gave the best sermon I've ever heard on LGBTQ+. Um, he, he himself is gay as a pastor, and he's married to a woman, so he's in a, what's called a mixed orientation marriage, and he has an incredible story. And uh, he gave a sermon, and it's the best sermon I've ever heard. And so I, I did an intro, and then I gave his sermon on the podcast, and then I got to interview him and his wife. And if you don't, have, if you don't know gay people in your life, uh, that would be a good place to start, would, would be to listen to, uh, to Pastor Jack and his story, and it's very, uh, very good. Now, before going any further, I have been using the word gay um, to describe gay people. And I know that that might make some uncomfortable here and or just have questions. Why are you using the word gay? Because we have to define what we mean uh, by the word gay because we normally use, we normally mean it in very different ways. So prepping this series, I asked um, a gay friend of mine, I said, what would you, what would you, what would you want to hear in this sermon? What would you, and specifically, what would you want straight Christians to hear uh, in this sermon? And his response was, um, please make the sexuality part of it minor. Because where straight Christians get confused is, or, or um, focus on is they act like being gay is all and even exclusively about sex and who you're having sex with and who you're dating and who you're, you know, even, even the attraction part of it. And he said, being gay is a way of being. It is a way of existing. He described it as not being inclined toward cultural norms. You're outside of the norm of culture. You don't want to be outside of the norm. You want to be in the norm. You want to be like everybody else. He's not talking about sex here. He's talking about inclinations towards things. And his example was when he was eight years old, um, all his other friends who were boys were playing sports, and he did not have a desire to play sports. He wanted to crochet with his grandmother. Now, that doesn't mean if you crochet that you're gay or if you're a guy, and it doesn't mean that every gay person wants to crochet. But for him, that was his inclination as an eight-year-old. He wanted to crochet with his grandmother rather than play sports with his friends. That was one example of inclination after inclination after inclination that was different and that didn't fit the cultural norm of what boys do. And you might say, well, get out there and play football. Really? Like, it doesn't work that way, right? It just, it doesn't work that way. And so, um, 
There's really no clever analogy that relates to straightness. There's nothing I can say that's like, yeah, so it's kind of like when you're straight and you feel this way, that's how he felt and feels every day of his life. All we can really do is, is sit down and listen and attempt to learn and honestly, you have to ask yourself, you have to sit down across the table from someone who's gay and say, I think you can teach me more about being gay and what it's like to be gay than I can. And you might be like, yeah, Noah, duh. And I'm not trying to be sarcastic about it either. It is, we are like that. We think we can sit across from a gay person because of what? Some sermons we heard by some straight pastor in a crowd full of mostly straight people, and we can tell them what it's like to be gay. Much like white people like to sit down with black people and tell them what it's like to be black or what it's like to be Hispanic. It's like this, and you should, and, and we, or a man to sit down with a woman and say, this is, what, this is what it's like to be a woman. We have to learn to listen to be learners, and to have empathy. Guys, empathy, 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 empathy. Uh, Wesley Hill, in his book, Washed and Waiting, which is a fantastic book uh, for straight and gay people alike. Uh, Wesley Hill is a single theologian. Uh, he's single and celibate, uh, gay, Christian theologian, professor. Um, and his Washington Waiting book is very, very good. He talks about in his book, it's being gay is kind of like being left-handed. Or it's like if you took a, a, a glass of water and you dropped ink into it or food coloring and it permeates all of the water, uh, that's how it feels to him to be gay. Everything he does is gay. Everything he does is gay. And he's single and celibate. Uh, Greg Coles, who I just interviewed on my podcast, has a book called single gay Christian, and he says the same thing. He talks about his inclinations, his hobbies, his interests um, are gay. And so to say something like gay is a sin, do you see how that would come across? I heard a friend preaching a sermon somewhat recently. I was there in person, and he kind of flippantly said, homosexuality is a sin. It just is. Is it a sin to have different interests? Is it a sin to be eight years old and to be interested in crochet instead of football? Is that a sin? When we act like having different interests is a sin, when we act like your internal inclination of the, just the way you experience life is a sin, what we're saying is you are a sin. And that's very different than saying same-sex, sex is a sin. Men having sex with men is a sin. Women having sex with women is a sin. That's fine. It is. It's very different. Or and I, what I would say better said, any sex outside of the marriage covenant of a man and woman is a sin. So is lusting over it. So is the fantasy of it. Straight people and gay people alike. We're all called to the same standard of sin. But, an eight-year-old is not having sex. A gay person in a mixed orientation marriage like Pastor Jack, Matt and Lori Krieg, who are local here in Grand Rapids, have a great book called Impossible Marriage. It's about their marriage. Lori 
is gay. She's attracted to women. She's married to Matt, who is straight. It's a fantastic book on marriage. Uh, inspired me greatly in my marriage. Someone in a mixed orientation marriage is still gay. They're not in sin. They're not, they're not doing anything sinful. A single celibate gay person, like Greg Holes, isn't even having sex. So how could their, back to quoting the sermon, the quote from the friend, how could their homosexuality be a sin? Uh, we're going to get to this in Scripture. Attraction is not a sin. The Bible never says it is. I, uh, I'm a firm believer in the Bible, you guys. We cannot add to the Bible, and we cannot take away from the Bible. And when you hear someone say the attraction is a sin, that's not in the Bible. That's adding to the Bible. See, uh, I'm attracted to women that are not my wife. I'm attracted to women that aren't my wife. I don't control that. It just happens. It's not a sin. Are you attracted to people that aren't your spouse? Yeah, you are. It's not like you get married and everybody else becomes unattractive to you, whether it's in person or a movie star. There's attractive people out there. You're a sin. You're in sin for being attracted to someone who's attractive. It's a sin when I act on those attractions. It's a sin when I act on them. If I choose to go down the path of lust or beyond, then I'm in sin. I mentioned... uh, eight-year-old, mixed-orientation marriage, a single celibate gay person, but it's also worthy of noting that a sexually active gay person who's having sex with someone that's their same sex, even they are not having sex all the time, okay? But they are gay all the time, just as I am straight all the time. And if you're straight and you're single, you're straight, all the time, even if you're not having sex. Having sex is not their identity, just as having sex is not your identity as a straight person. Now, uh, I've heard people say, don't identify the sin gay uh, with being like a gay Christian. I would not identify myself as a greedy Christian or a lustful Christian. My identity is in Christ. It's not in my sin, so they shouldn't do that either. And uh, we, b- before we could easily sermonize that and say amen to that, again, we need to slow things down and understand that a gay Christian is not identifying with the sin of same-sex sex. That is not what they're identifying with if they choose to call themselves a gay Christian. They're identifying with an internal configuration of all of who they are that makes them different than the majority. When you're different than the majority, you might choose to identify yourself based on your difference. You might choose to say you are a black Christian or a Hispanic Christian or some other minority in the United States. If you are a Korean immigrant, you might say I am a Korean Christian or I go to a Korean church. They're identifying with something that makes them different than the majority. With all due respect to Christians that prefer to identify as same-sex attracted or SSA, which I understand, and I am behind you, and I am with you. Uh, That should not be prescribed to all, which happens a lot, particularly from straight pastors who say, you can call yourself same-sex attracted, but don't call yourself gay. Um, Why do I don't think it should be prescribed? Uh, Because it, it heaps shame on people for something that's not biblically sinful. The attraction to the same sex is not sinful. 
Um, so why are we heaping shame on someone for something that isn't a sin? And it heaps shame on the very essence of who you are. So why are there all those suicides? We looked at the suicide stat. Why every 45 seconds is an LGBTQ plus youth attempting suicide? Because we're telling gay and trans people that they are sinning just by existing. We're telling gay and trans people that they are sinning just by existing. So when you come to church and you learn about the sins, we talk about sin at church. You should. That's what we're, we don't, we're trying to be holy. We're trying to just walk the path of Jesus and, and, and discipleship. So you might hear about sins like adultery and lust and pornography and same-sex sex and pride and greed. And you might go, okay, I have some of those in my life. I can relate to some of those sins, and I need to walk the path of, of uh, sanctification, we would call it, um, of, of, not, of not doing those sins. But that is very different than if you came to church and the pastor got up and held the Bible and said, it is a sin to have blonde hair. It's a sin to have blonde hair. And everyone's looking around like, let me see you. It's a sin to have black skin. It's a sin. It's a sin to have blue eyes. Who's got blue eyes in here? It's a sin to be left-handed. What would you do then? And then on top of that, the church starts demonizing all the lefties, all the blondies, and starts cracking jokes and holding up signs and even creating laws against you. And I know you talk about law, and it gets complex, and I know that. But I hate it when both sides act like it's not complex. It is complex. Approaching this is very, very complex. But if you were gay, this is how you would experience it. I heard a gay politician say recently, I'm just trying to exist. I'm just trying to exist. Most gay and trans people are not fighting theological wars or even political wars, with the exception of trying to stay alive. In, in defending their worth as humans. Most are fighting to live and to stay alive. Most of us Christians here would say that we are pro-life. We would say we are pro-life. And if we are pro-life, how can we not get behind something that would alleviate LGBTQ plus youth trying to die by suicide every 45 seconds? Pro-life covers all life. It does. It covers all life if we're going from the Bible on, on, where we, on where we get that from. So, as we, as we talk about that, uh, I say, let's figure out the complexity of it. And I know a question right now is, how can I do that without affirming the behavior? How can I do that? How can I, how can I do that? How can I help LGBTQ plus people without affirming the behavior, without affirming the, the same-sex sex? And I say, let's figure it out. I say, let's figure it out. And let me ask you this. How do you honor other people's dignity that have behavior the Bible doesn't approve of? Think of anyone in your life that's straight, and they have behavior that the Bible doesn't approve of. The first person that comes to mind should be yourself, but let's go beyond that. Think of someone in your life that has behavior the Bible doesn't approve of, how do you treat them? It's a good formula to follow. You love them. You are kind. 
you are their friends, and you shine Jesus' light to them. It doesn't mean that you affirm same-sex marriage. It doesn't mean you have to affirm same-sex marriage. You love them, you are kind, you are their friends, and you shine Jesus' light to them like you would to anybody else. We're going to dive into some scriptures here. We looked at these last week. Uh, Genesis 1.27, Genesis 2.24. The biblical framework uh, for the, the LGB and the T, uh, they come from the creation account in Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. So within the creation account, we have uh, the... the the, earth has been, the, the, the universe has been created, sin has not entered the world, and we, we base a lot of our theology and doctrine off these two chapters. Genesis 3 comes and it breaks creation, and we're in a sinful, broken world now. But prior to that, we have God setting up, one, he creates mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he creates them, male and female, he creates them. So this is where we, as Christians, would develop, or at least where I would develop, uh, a framework in a theology that there's two biological sexes, male and female, and God has uniquely created us in his image that male and female uniquely uh, represent his image. Uh, we talked last week, we did a whole sermon on the one flesh union uh, between a male and a female as God's definition, his ideal uh, for sex and for marriage. It's a unique way uh, that that one flesh act uh, comes together with two biological sexes. Um, one flesh there, synonymous with marriage. Jesus, I don't have the quote up there. We talked about it last week. He reaffirms this in Matthew 19, 8 and 9. He quotes Genesis 2, 24. He reaffirms two biological sexes within marriage between male and female. Uh, we also see this two-sex imagery of marriage. Uh, we did, talked about this last week with Christ the groom and the church, the bride in Ephesians 5, both now and then looking into the future, Revelation 21, when Jesus comes back, he's coming back as the groom and we are the bride. So a fancy word is hermeneutics, the way we interpret the Bible. Uh, Pre-fall, Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21, these two places in scripture where there's no sin, these are pretty solid places of getting our theology from, that this is, this is God's design uh, in his framework for sex. So then we have what we would call prohibition passages that we look to that, that tell us don't do that and don't do that and don't do that. The prohibition passages are in support of the framework that's already been laid in the book of Genesis. Now, the prohibition passages, whether it's gay or straight acts of sex, there's prohibition passages that affect all of us, albeit in different ways. Uh, they give evidence and support of this design that we're talking about. So up on the screen, I have uh, two of the three main prohibition passages uh, from the New Testament. Let's just read through them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 says this, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by uh, the Spirit of our God. 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 11, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, 
for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So, first of all, in these two passages, I want you to notice, and I just highlighted the two that have to do with um, what we're talking about today, uh, that these are talking about sexual behaviors, not attraction. So when it says men who have sex with men, it's very literal. When it says practicing homosexuality, the practicing is very intentional. Uh, this is the, the active sexual behavior, not the attraction. And almost always, when um, in these passages is, um, specifically, when same-sex sex is talked about, it's talked about in a, a list of other sins. Some are pretty severe, like murder and things like that, but you also see sins on here like pride and greed and lying. And, and these are sins that uh, we do all the time, and frankly, you rarely hear good sermons about uh, because they're so accepted and, and commonplace in the church among straight Christians. And that's something we need to, we need to take a look in the mirror about. Uh, but the, again, the prohibitions here, both for gay and straight people alike, are reinforcing the one flesh framework that we talked about uh, on the, uh, the previous slide. Back to the framework here. I'm going to um, switch gears a little bit now, and we're going to talk a little bit about a biblical framework for gender. And again, you might be wondering, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this in a sermon? Uh, one, uh, I, want to, um, I want to acknowledge uh, and honor the existence of LGBTQ plus people in the world and in the church. Um, Nate Collins wrote a book called All But Invisible, and he describes being a gay Christian as like, I'm never even talked about, like, ever in the church. It's like I don't even exist. Um, I want to help those uh, that want to follow a path of discipleship uh, that we believe Scripture lays out. I want people to know that, you, that everyone is, is, is loved and accepted and in the sense of um, we're going to be your friend and we're going to love you and be kind to you. Um, and I really believe that all of us as Christians, particularly straight Christians, we need to grow in our maturity uh, in our spiritual discipleship as we follow Jesus of how to better do this hard task of loving LGBTQ plus people um, while doing what feels, what feels impossible. It's like still holding on to these, uh, to these scriptures. Okay, so um, let me get back to my notes here. I'm bouncing back and forth. All right, here we go. All right, we're talking about gender now. And uh, we talked at the beginning about sex and gender uh, being two different things. Uh, you see, at least the way we use the words nowadays. Um, so you see here Genesis 1.27, Genesis 2.24, clearly lays out two biological sexes that are part of God's of sex and of marriage. Um, I highly recommend, um, hey, this picture came through, yay. Uh, this book by Preston Sprinkle called Embodied. Uh, the subtitle is Transgender Identities, the Church, and What the Bible Has to Say. Uh, Preston does a really good job of, he does a ton of research, he has a ton of footnotes. I'm going to reference some of the things he says. I don't footnote him, I'm footnoting him who footnotes them elsewhere, but he does a lot of research in the medical community, he does a lot of interviews with trans people, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of historical background stuff as well. This book is really, uh, really good, and I also have an interview with him uh, about the book, if you're interested. All right, um, so some of this is, is uh, here we go, let's just kind of jump into it. Um, 
We talked about there's two biological sexes as this discipleship framework. There are variations within these male and female categories. And there's sometimes a blend of the male and female categories. Uh, but an argument Preston makes is it doesn't mean that there's that more than two categories exist. So the two categories we're framing from Genesis is still male and female, and even a blend of them says there's still two categories of biological sex, though we differ in how we are male and female. And the church has really done a poor job at this, and so is society. So if you're male, it means this, you know, this, this box of masculinity, and we define masculinity like this. And, and, and maybe it's driving a truck or playing football or, you know, hunting or whatever it might be. And over here, uh, there's, a, there's a box of femininity, and, and that's a little outside of my sphere of expertise. Uh, but in the church, it's, it's often uh, whatever it may be. And there's nothing wrong with those things that I just listed, and there'd be nothing wrong with what would fit into um, what we might call femininity as far as maybe even it's the, the way you dress and the way you do your hair and the things you're interested in and, and sort of the hobbies. And, and if you do a women's retreat, there's maybe some stereotypical women's retreat activities. And uh, if you fall outside of these um, gender... Uh, these gender, um, we'll get there, the cultural aspects. Let me, let me get to this. Um, here we go. This idea of gender being the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. So male or female is your biological sex, but then gender is these aspects we have within culture of being male and female. So a uh, perfect example of this is blue for boys, pink for girls. There's nothing about a boy uh, that says he needs to like blue, and there's nothing about a girl that says she needs to like pink. But why do a lot of girls like pink and a lot of boys like blue? Uh, it's because culture just told them that, right? Culture just told them that, and, and the gender reveal parties and all that stuff, like, and you buy girls pink stuff, and you buy boys uh, blue stuff. Here's a great example from history. Uh, this is um, King, is it Louis or Louis? I think it's Louis. Louis, uh, King Louis the Fourteenth of France, 1701 portrait, and the brother is rocking himself some some fancy high heels. Uh, so in the 1700s, um, high heels were a sign of masculinity, and they were a sign of wealth. It was a sign of elite wealth. And so King Louis and all of his court, he made all the men wear high heels, um, and it was a sign of their elite status. Based on how non-practical they were, uh, they, that they didn't have to work out in the field, so they could wear these, and the red ink was a sign of wealth. Uh, later, women uh, started incorporating masculine uh, fashion into their fashion, and that is how high heels became part of uh, women fashion. But you also see his whole getup is quite fancy, um, probably not something I'm going to wear for my sermon next week. Uh, in the Bible, we see David, he's dancing, he's writing poetry, he's playing the harp. Those are not things that we would necessarily incorporate with uh, masculinity today. And so some of the problem is we've created very rigid ideas of what masculinity is and femininity is. And if you go uh, outside of that, we say, now, now you have a problem. Uh, in the church, we, you know, we, would, we would say that. Um, we need to have compassion on trans people who experience their gender identity as incongruent with their biological sex. And I'll say this, I, I hear so much mocking sarcasm, both online and in person, from non-trans people, specifically non-trans Christians. Uh, please, I, I would, uh, don't ever support um, the Babylon Bee. It's a, it's a, it's a satirical Christian uh, website, and, and uh, it used to be funny. They used to make fun of things in the church, like about like worship music and silly things, like about, and now they just make fun of like trans people, and, and um, it's, 
It's really sad. We, uh, we as Christians shouldn't do that. Um, we, we shouldn't do that. Uh, I understand on a macro level, it can be jarring to see what's happening on a macro level. And, uh, but again, if you don't know a trans person and know what they experience and what they go through, um, then uh, you, you, you really need to pause on the, your conclusions of how to approach this really difficult subject. I was talking to a Christian parent, a mom, whose child had transitioned. So transitioning is when someone uh, goes through medical procedures, could be surgery, it could be hormonal, where they, they transition um, their body uh, in different ways from becoming biologically male to biologically female or vice versa. Um, and so uh, not all trans people transition. Um, there's a wide umbrella of what, it, of what it means to be trans. But this mom's child had transitioned. And she said uh, she started noticing something was wrong when her, her um, child, who was a young teenager, stopped taking showers and started to smell, just started to smell bad. And it was evident the child smelled bad. And the mom couldn't get the child to take showers. And uh, it turns out that the child had gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria uh, overlaps with trans. Not all trans people have gender dysphoria and vice versa. But gender dysphoria is, is when, so for this child, uh, they were so disoriented and nauseous and sickened to see their own anatomy, their sexual anatomy, that they stopped, they stopped being naked. They weren't going to go into the shower because to see their own anatomy was so jarring to them. Uh, and, and this is not meant to be crude, but the, the, only, the, the best way to kind of get your head around that is like if you went in the shower tomorrow and you, you had the wrong anatomy, like your, your, your biological anatomy wasn't there anymore and you had the other anatomy, you would, you would, you'd, you'd freak out. You, you, would, you, would, you wouldn't know how to, how to process that. That's what's happening for those with gender dysphoria. This is a quote from Embodied. Um, Preston has several quotes from people that have uh, gender dysphoria, and they describe it like this. One person describes it as the piercing to the heart feeling when you feel like every single person in the room is staring at you, like your heart is ripped open, and they're just picking up the pieces. This may sound pretty harsh to someone who's never experienced gender dysphoria. However, for me, it happens in some degree almost every time I'm out in public places with people around me. It also happens before I get ready to go out. And this has become such a battle. Fighting just to leave my house, and by the time I fought for hours at a time, I'm exhausted and broken. I feel inadequate, broken, and I just want to disappear. Again, a reminder that every 45 seconds, an LGBTQ plus youth attempts uh, suicide. Um, Jesus meets us in our brokenness, and Christians need to learn to meet trans people in their feelings of brokenness. I don't have time to talk about intersex, um, really more than I already have, but intersex and trans are not the same thing. Not all intersex people are trans, and not all trans people are intersex. And it, it is offensive to assume uh, that, that, that um, one means the other. They're both unique experiences that carry unique weight, and sometimes they do, uh, they do overlap. Uh, but um, the most important thing is for us to understand that intersex people and trans people are beautiful people created in the image of God. A few notes and tips. Um, call people by the pronouns they prefer uh, if you seek to love them. If your desire is to love someone, call them by the pronouns that they want to be called. Um, I don't have time to explain all that. I'm happy to have lunch with you, coffee with you to talk more about that. But uh, if you don't care about loving people, go ahead, just call them whatever you want. Totally fine. 
Um, if you hope to talk to someone about Jesus, call them by their pronouns that they prefer. If you don't care about telling someone about Jesus, if that's just not a care at all to you, you don't, they don't need the gospel, you're not, not going to hear it from you, um, don't call them by their preferred pronouns. Call them whatever you want. What I mean is some, some are adamant that I'm going to call you by your birth, sex, pronouns, no matter what you say. Um, that, is, that is a good way to not love someone and to make sure that they want nothing to do with Jesus or your church or you uh, ever. And I hope that's not your goal. All right, um, we're going to start landing the plane here. Uh, I, I took, I, I, I plucked out um, the, the kind of the main prohibition passages from 1 Corinthians uh, 6 and, and 1 Timothy 1. And here, what I've done is I've highlighted the, the, the part to straight people, um, reminding me that I'm in, I'm in this prohibition, excuse me, this prohibition just as much um, that, that's reinforcing, um, not just as much, it's very different, but we are included in this framework um, that, that is going against the passage we talked about last week. So last week in 1 Corinthians 6, the quote of the day in Corinth was, I have the right to do anything. And you'll notice the first verses are 9 through 11, very next verse, 12, I have the right to do anything. So these go together. Um, the word for us uh, in sexually, the sexually immoral is the word porneia in Greek. And porneia just means any sex outside of marriage. And that would include, obviously, pornography. It includes uh, the, even the lustful thoughts that, that Jesus talks about. So, so that's what these prohibition verses are there for. And we might ask, well, why are they there? Why are we talking about them? Um, they're, because um, all of these behaviors... Sex before marriage, adultery, lust, same-sex sex. sex. Uh, they're outside of the male-female one design, one flesh design. They're outside of that. And, and so uh, on one side of our culture, and it was the same in Corinth, you had people saying, I have the right to do anything. And at some point, you have to draw a line. So I have a right to do anything means anything, right? And at some point, you have to draw a line. And this is where the Bible draws the line, okay? And I just have to stand up here and go, this is where the Bible draws the line. I understand that some people draw the line in different places. Um, but why might the Bible draw a line here? Um, I want to just say a couple things about our culture today. And again, this is very complicated and very difficult. And I, but I think we have to really try to, to, to work, navigate some of this out. Some are living today in the eye of the right to do anything camp that do have a choice, okay? So I can tell you, everybody I know that's gay, that's my age, that grew up in the 90s, uh, they didn't choose to be gay. I, I am not working with youth today. Um, I, I, I don't, not in a direct on that level, um, so I haven't had these conversations today with, with youth. Um, but I can, I can tell you, uh, well, I gotta be careful uh, <laughs> what I say here. Um, I can tell you that um, those that work with youth can still see at a, at a young age, um, yeah, that kid, that kid's probably gay, you know, at young, young ages, and, and often that, that turns out to be true. Um, but let me, let me say this, that there are um, some that do have a choice, okay? Not all, certainly not all, but some that do. And for those of you that are teens or young adults, uh, you, you probably see this, where some are just sexually experimenting, 
Okay, so I'm going to sexually experiment, and I'm going to experiment with men, and I'm going to experiment with women. Uh, some are bisexual, so they don't have a choice in that, but, but in a sense have a choice. They could, they could choose between, okay, I could be with someone of the opposite sex. I could choose that. And what I'm saying is if you have a choice, choose this. If you're a Christian and you have a choice, choose this. Uh, there's young people today uh, for both trans and for being gay. Uh, it does feel like in culture, young people are taught, kids and, and teenagers are taught, you have a right to do anything. And there are some that are not innately LGBTQ that are choosing it for a variety of reasons. Maybe a sense of acceptance, maybe a sense of filling up some loneliness. Um, I don't know. Uh, but that's part of this equation, and we need to say in a discipleship sort of way, um, if you can choose this, choose this. Uh, same for those that are straight, um, that are having sex outside of this framework. For those who can't choose this, the path of discipleship gets less clear because it doesn't feel like there's an end goal sexually. So I, 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 I'm empathetic towards that. And some have chosen, like I've mentioned, celibacy, like Greg Coles and singleness. Uh, these are people that are gay and Christian and are, and are saying, I'm affirming the Bible's view of sex and marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, some have chosen singleness and life in community, intentional community. Some have chosen mixed orientation marriages, like I mentioned, Pastor Jack or Lori Krieg. Some have chosen celibate partnerships, spiritual friendships, Wesley Hill wrote a book called Spiritual Friendship, if you want to learn more about that. They would all be within that realm. But I don't say those as easy or quick or even prescribed solutions. I, 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 I want to hold the weight of the difficulty of um, the difficulty that it is for those whose sexual brokenness relates to their attractions, um, to navigating one of these paths. There are similarities to the battle of a straight single person, a straight single person who's saying, okay, uh, I'm not having sex either, and, um, I need to and we're going to talk about some of that in week four. I need to figure out how to get these needs met in healthy ways that are biblical. Um, and I also don't want to conclude the sermon without mentioning the hidden pain and longing of so many straight people that are in marriages. Uh, we mentioned the stat, 15 to 20% of marriages are sexless. And uh, I want to remind everyone that marriage is not God. Marriage uh, is not God. It will not satisfy you. Um, and we'll talk about that more next week. So uh, how do you get someone from A to B? How do you get someone, whether they're gay or straight, from A to B? How do you get them from living in a way the Bible says is sinful to adopting, uh, to adopting the one flesh between a man and a woman mindset? Well, you don't. The Holy Spirit does. I mean, I think we, we feel like we can, good luck with that, parents, you know, if you can get your, you know, we, we feel like we have a power that I, I think only the Holy Spirit has. There's, there's a pretty harsh passage in Romans 1 we don't have time to get to. It'll be in your devotional for this week. And they list out different sins that bring on God's wrath. 
And same-sex lust and, and same-sex sex are mentioned in verses 26 to 27, um, along with some other sins. And it's a harsh passage because it talks about wrath, and we're uncomfortable with God's wrath on sin. But this is where I want to end today. This piece about God's wrath leads up to Romans 2, 1, which says, you, therefore, have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else. It just listed out some pretty explicit sins, including same-sex, sex, and lust. Um, and it says, when you pass judgment on someone else who's doing the things just listed, whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things of this long list of sins that are listed. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Here's, here, let's key in on verse four. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And if you keep following Romans, it leads you straight into the gospel in Romans chapter three. Oh, that's a B. Hello, friend. <laughs> Glad he didn't sting me. I want to let this verse marinate that we as straight Christians need to be very careful that we do not show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, and that it is in kindness that people come to repentance. And if you're sitting here as a straight person or watching online and you're going, you need to say more, Noah. You need to condemn the gay people. I'm just letting scripture speak. <laughs> I would challenge you that you need to be very careful in your attitude towards gay people, even active, sexually active gay people that are having same-sex sex that the Bible lists as a sin, when this very explicitly, after just mentioning that sin, very explicitly says, do not show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, which is what brings people to repentance. It is a long path of learning to trust Jesus as king and falling deeper in love with him and experiencing his love deeper. We all are welcome on that path. And the sacrifices are going to look different and at different scales. Gay people are going to have to make sacrifices. Straight people are going to have to make sacrifices. Married people are going to have to make sacrifices. Single people are going to have to make sacrifices. And divorced people are going to have to make sacrifices for the path of following Jesus. And each person I just listed is carrying an incredible weight. But we need to know that we can do this together in community. And there's a place on this discipleship path, and there's a place at Mosaic Church for everyone. For everyone. And church, I know this is not a perfect sermon. I don't think that exists. <laughs> I don't think that exists. But will you pray with me? Will you pray even for yourself right now? Will you pray for us as a church? Will you pray for the LGBTQ youth that are attempting suicide every 45 seconds? We have to depend on God more than we do. We have to let Scripture speak to each of us about the way that we approach people. And I hope that today 
helps you uh, to do that. Um, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and we're just going to have our time of prayer to close out the service. Um, and as we have our time of prayer, uh, we're going um, to sing a song, and we're going to invite you to pray. But first, would you just let me pray? Um, let me just pray for us and uh, pray for you and pray for those watching, pray for those in our lives that we know, and then we'll move into our uh, just closing worship song and a prayer invitation. Lord, um, Thank you for being with us. And God, I, I know in a sermon like this, I get a sense that there's likely people in the room, uh, if there were sides to this, and I hate to use that wording, there's uh, people on both sides that are probably saying, um, that wasn't what I expected to hear. That wasn't what I wanted to hear. God, I come before you as a broken man that you've called to be a pastor. I come before you as a broken, finite, limited human that you've called to hold up scripture in 2023 in the midst of people's bleeding and pain and tears and brokenness and to call people to Jesus, to call people to repentance, but God, to do the hard work of calling out the church for ways that we have not been loving. And we've called things sin that are not sin. And there may be some in this room that have been indoctrinated that gay attraction is sin. And I just ask that they would be willing to go to Scripture and look at the text and to see that that's not in the text, that the behavior is a sin, not the attraction, and that you would fill us with incredible empathy for those that have attractions that they don't control and are trying to figure out what to do with them. And I pray for those that are yielding to the conviction of the Spirit and are yielding to Scripture and saying, I'm going to live a life. I'm going to live a life that, that embodies God's design for sex and gender the best that I can. And God, I pray for those that are just not there yet. They're just not there yet. And I pray that they would know that we're still with them on their journey and we love them and have empathy for them. God, I pray for gay people in this very room right now. I pray for trans people in this very room right now. I pray for single people. I pray for married people. I pray for divorced people. Holy Spirit, we need you. 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 And may everyone know that they are not alone. That I love them. <laughs> I love you if you're listening to this. And God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And he's calling you to himself to bring your brokenness to him. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Amen.